once you see how the sausage gets made and you start like setting up your campaigns and speaking the language of the sausage makers, oh my God, you can achieve so much more economic output. You can achieve better relationships with your vendors. You can work more efficiently. Like it's incredible. So, you know, learn the language of the sausage maker. That's my takeaway there. I love it. We got to clip that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Learn the language of the sausage maker. That's the intro that you'll just yeah. use then. <laughs> Every company knows they need to do it at some point, but what work actually goes into a great brand campaign? Maya Spivak builds tech brands. Today, she joins us to share how she built Wealthfront and Segments brands. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of the revenue leaders behind today's successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakoff. Maya Spivak is a marketing leader based in the Bay Area. She most recently led marketing for developer brands Mux and Gretel before going off on her own as an independent consultant. For today's episode, I wanted to talk to Maya about the brand campaign she led at Wealthfront and Segment. At Wealthfront, she led several major product launches, including a successful TV ad campaign with over 30 spots. Then in six years at Segment, a customer data platform, she ran a memorable billboard campaign, launched a user conference, and helped build the branding foundations that led to a $3 billion acquisition by Twilio. Today, she shared what went into executing those campaigns and how companies should think about brand building. I hope you enjoy. So I'd love to start today's conversation with your time at Wellfront, where you were a marketing director responsible for product and brand. I'd love to know what made you join Wellfront and what was it like when you joined? Oh, man. When I joined Wellfront, there was 23 other people. So I was number 24. And I joined because I deeply loved the product. And I loved the product for years before I joined the actual company at so I was one of those people that was a very noisy customer where I would send in, you know, my thoughts and my feedback. And it helped that I actually lived in Palo Alto at the time because Wealthfront was based in Palo Alto. I was born in Palo Alto. And I one day walked past a building which had a sign in the window, literally one of those like cardboard, not cardboard, but styrofoam board signs. And on the front was printed the first Wealthfront logo. And it was literally propped in the window. And after I saw that, I was like, whoa, this is the Wealthfront building. And then I went back and emailed them. I was like, hey, I'm a customer. Love the product. By the way, I live in Palo Alto. Did you know that if you have customers that maybe live in Palo Alto, which probably have a good handful because we're all tech people, and they walk past this location and they see this like styrofoam board in the window, they might not think the brand is like super legit and it's like safe to park your money there and invest in an automated fashion like maybe they, that thought might cross their mind that's when we connected uh based on that you know light and good intention feedback and they were like probably a little bit offended but in general that made the connection between me like a very enthusiastic customer and them very enthusiastic founders and we were, you know, exchanging notes for probably about a year before they asked me to join as a marketer and exchanging notes. Like I was an alpha user of basically everything. And they're like, hey, we're about to announce this. Like, what do you think? And I would just send back some notes. Very cool. And yeah. I assume I know one of the founders of Wealthfront was Andy Ratcliffe, right? Yeah. Who I guess was a benchmark partner and had a big career before Wealthfront. I came up with the idea yeah. of like, so it sounds like you were trading notes with him directly. And was he the one who would hire you or is it someone else? And I'm curious, like, when you did join, like, what was your first kind of goals um, as a marketing director? Yeah. yeah, he's definitely one of the people. He took me out for uh, a cookie. He bought me a cookie. Well, I was nice. working at Google at the time. And so he, uh, we picked a, a nearby cafe to meet and hang out. He told me more about himself and why he found his wealth front and, and his beliefs and his vision. And he bought me a cookie at specialties and I'll never forget. And so that was part of the conversation that was like, I definitely need to work for this man. He's incredible. When I first joined, what we had to do was basically just open up to beyond word of mouth marketing. So at, at 24 people, Wealthfront had, I don't remember how many assets under management we had, like how much money that that's the metric by which fintech institutions, banks, or retail banks like assess their success is like how much money they actually have under management called assets under management, AUM. I don't remember how much the AUM was, but it was well under $500 million. 
And that was all word of mouth, just like people in Silicon Valley who knew about what Wellsprint was trying to build and telling each other about it and uh, what, what we needed to do when Wealthfront decided to open up marketing as a function was get out to the broader world or like, you know, even just like penetrate Silicon Valley more. And in the very beginning, what we were selling was an automated investment service, but we had a pretty high bar for a new customer to hurdle over in advance of being able to even open an account. So, so in the very beginning, Wealthfront was automated investment services for accounts that were a minimum of $5,000. So it's like a non-trivial amount of money that you had to be ready to lock up into a long-term investment strategy. And you had to know what a long-term investment strategy was. And you had to be interested in the long-term investment strategy. And so those three things were like, that, that was the start of the marketing. It's like, how do I explain to people? How do we explain to people? What's the difference between long-term passive investing and the kind of investing that people tend to think about when when they first hear the words investing, which is like, that's more of the Wolf of Wall Street type of investing. That's like the day trading type of situation. That's the beat the market, Jim Cramer type of like, you know, chest pounding investing. That's, that's what people tend to think about. And that's pretty much the opposite of what Wealthfront does. It's like a lot of education, just, just a ton of product education, leaning on expertise that we had in-house and really lifting up some of the incredible authorities on the topic that we were working with, like Bert Malkiel, who was our chief investment officer and literally wrote the book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street, like like the primer on why you should be passively investing for the long term. So that was the entire, but basically the entire first two years was elevating all of that, teaching people. And it sounds like a lot of that education and sort of building trust in the market, it, it was mostly like content marketing. Because I, I imagine automated investing and long-term investing, this stuff are like scary concepts for a lot of people. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. So was it mostly content marketing of sort of how you push that message or was there other things that you were doing as well? Both of those. So it was mostly content marketing, but there was a lot of product marketing involved. And so the difference between those two was like, I would say probably comes down to the channels in which you create those materials for. So the Wealthfront blog, for example, probably the the thing that we held up most on a pedestal is just like incredible knowledge from really trustworthy experts written in a way that we sought to educate people. And some of it wasn't even about things you could do with Wealthfront. It was just like, you know, you can trust the people that built Wealthfront because they're writing and telling you about your equity plan at your startup that you work at, because the majority of our early days customers were engineers and tech people in Silicon Valley, because they were the ones in the earliest days who trusted that machines can do a lot of things better than humans can, including invest money. Like there's a foundational philosophy you had to believe in. And so the Wealthfront blog was our content marketing engine, uh, even though we weren't just writing about investing, investing, investing in there. We were, we were kind of writing off of the themes of investing, like investing in yourself, investing in your career. What is equity? How do RSUs work? How do preferred stock options work? And all this kind of stuff that, you know, you can't put your stock options inside of Wealthfront. You still can't to this day, but we were teaching and we were engendering trust. And then on the flip side of the product marketing, where we actually were explaining what the product does and what the features are, and every time we rolled out a new service, those the component marketing pieces that involved a lot of like creativity to make them mainstream consumer could pick up and and to learn from. So that was like, for example, Wealthfront was the first automated investment service to debut tax loss harvesting. And then the first to do direct indexing, which is an even more sophisticated financial technique that we automated. And so People that do these sophisticated investing techniques in the real world, like like pre-app and pre-services that do it using machines, they don't even know how to explain it. You know what I mean? So we have to figure out how to explain the concept in general. We have to figure out how to explain the concept in general as it is practiced by machines and the software and the algorithm. And then we have to like kind of do it in a way that engenders trust because this was pre-AI. This was pre-like, 
it's okay to let the machine do your work for you. And actually, you know, that guy, that wolf on Wall Street, who your parents know, or your uncle or your aunt has the hookup for, like, you don't need that guy. What you need is like a trustworthy automated solution, like Wealthfront. So there's a lot of like a product marketing, which I would really kind of distinctly put in its own corner away from the blog and the content marketing that we were doing. Let's go a level deeper on the the product launches because you mentioned a few that you had launched at Wealthfront, like the index investing. And I think you also did like the first uh, mobile app for, for iOS and some others. Like were any of those product launches super memorable? And can you like take us behind the scenes of an actual product launch? Because, you know, like there's a lot of like understanding. OK, I know you didn't work on Wall Street before this. Like what is this thing that they're actually building, turning that into marketing messaging, making all the collateral? Like what did that actually look like at, at Wealthfront? Yeah. It was really fun. So for example, for the, the for the launch of tax loss harvesting, this was the first time that we had to, well, we decided to do a video and we decided to do uh, an animation, so an animated cartoon. So this was approaching eight years ago. And the cartoon, like it, the animation, in order to, to translate a complicated financial technique into an animated very, very short film, like an explainer video, you have to first understand the concept so well that you then translate it to the designers and the animators who are making your video, right? And you have to think up the analogy. Like, what is the analogy for tax loss harvesting? It's like, you have to do something to make it visual because you can't just write tax loss harvesting in like fancy fonts and put some colors on there. And that's like, that's your explainer. No, that doesn't explain anything. Right. You have to. So we figured out this analogy where you are planting seeds and they grow, but certain of your trees don't grow. In fact, they like they stay rooted. They and you can rip them out. You rip rip your losses out. You harvest those losses. And so it's just this whole complicated but gettable analogy, like way more artistic and interesting and like it definitely intellectual exercise and you get to see that whole thing come to life right like as as a marketer you are first yourself like you mentioned i, I didn't come from investment banking this I, I didn't study it i had finance 101 in college and that's where i kind of really started to to like it on a personal level to like it enough to want to do it for myself and and study it a little bit more personally. And that's why I became a customer of Wealthfront when I first read about it. But I didn't have the the education required, right? So you have to go so deep that you get it. And then you have to turn around and teach other people because they have to get it in order to illustrate your concept. And then you get all the way to this finished explainer video and people watch it and it makes sense. And the best thing about the video, like when you tell stories with video and when you use those videos to explain concepts, the way that you know that it works in the world of marketing, right? In the world of tech marketing, or maybe I don't want to like overgeneralize and say that this like always works and that's how you know. But for me in my career so far, I take it as a huge success when on launch day, the video that you created gets embedded in the assets created by other people. The journalist is writing up the story about you, your company, your launch, the thing that you debuted that day. And they willfully chose to embed your assets in their work. You know, you did a good job because they are very like allergic to journalists are allergic to anything that seems like it sells too hard. They don't want to inject any more advertising into their, you know, difficult to read websites uh, as they already are. You know, but if they choose to embed your assets, it's like win, 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 win. Everybody wins. And then years later, I'm still Googling these articles so that I can I can kind of show my prior work as it is held up and endorsed by other people. So this happened at Wealthfront for tax loss harvesting in a couple of uh, in at least one financial trade press blog that like covers all the fintech happenings. And then it happened at Segment when we launched a product called Sources and the TechCrunch article that came out on the day of the launch, on the day of Sources launch, had my video in it. And, uh, you know, it's like very gratifying. When, that's how you know that it's received well. 
I've, I've been on the other side of that of like trying to put together the press packet and have all my little gifts and images and stuff. And then it's like, nope, they just go with some yeah, stock image. And you're like, what? Like, come on, yeah. I made this nice yeah. thing for you. But I totally get their perspective yeah. Too, yeah, no, that, that it's a, that's a great, great task that I've never thought of uh, before. Yeah, and I've I've tried and failed many, many a time. Yeah, you never know. It's not you, you, you can't ask. That's one thing you can't do, right? It's like yeah. you can't ask the journalist to include your assets. You can only just try to be like, and we made these other things, and like you know, feel free to use them if they're, <laughs> and try to like incept the idea of using the assets that you've already created. How did you get the press in the first place? Did you have a deliberate strategy to go reach out to journalists and, and things like that? Or do you think it was just buzzy enough that uh, you were able to kind of ride the zeitgeist and they were excited to write about it? Mm, we had a deliberate strategy. Well, I mean, I'm sure well, for, you can always say that it's buzzy and it was interesting and it was frontier like, ro- you know, they, they called us robo advisors. And at the time when I was at Wealthfront, Andy Reckless really didn't like the term robo-advisors at all. Because again, this was like pre-generative AI, pre-robo-anything being a good thing. You know, it's like too much RoboCop and not enough like chat GPT, which is 10 years away. But we had a really incredible PR leader, Kate Walk. You, you should you could interview her next and find out all of her secrets because she stayed at Wealthfront like a true believer for close to 10 years now. She's like incredible, been with it since the very beginning and still, still there, like just making it shine. Very cool. And mm-hmm. and while you're at Wellfront, I think you, you ran a big direct response TV commercial campaign. I'd love to spend some time talking about it because it was, it was really interesting as I was reading a little bit about it. And so I'd love to start with the beginning. Like, why did you decide to run a big TV commercial campaign? And like, what was the strategy and sort of your thinking going into it? Yeah, well, we decided to run TV ads partly because it was time. It was like we perceived it to be time within our, you know, growth trajectory to really try to break out into the mainstream. So one thing that we were doing really well is appealing to people who had an easier time picking up the idea that software does things better than humans can and you should automate your investing. And those people happen to primarily be, you know, in Silicon Valley and then in New York, of course. And usually they were engineers, software people, tech people, product people. They were just like software adjacent. And so it was not unusual to them to think this way. And it was not unusual to them to seek out software solutions to, you know, the everyday kind of questions that they were asking themselves about their own investing in their own finances and their own money. Right. It's early fintech. It's not, this was, Robinhood was maybe just on the on the being born side, uh, and certainly not. This was pre like AMC theaters, crazy. Everybody's using Robinhood to invest in meme stocks like that. None of that was happening, right? This is like, can you trust a computer to do any of this? Like, we're we just barely had passed over the like peak online banking. Can I can I get an online bank? So we needed to go mainstream beyond the people who were already comfortable with it. We wanted to pick up regular consumers. And like, what do regular consumers do? At the time, they were just beginning to cord cut. Sure. But plenty of them were still watching TV with commercials, you know? And so we picked up, it wasn't enough for us to do one commercial because one commercial, it was just too risky. You can't just, you you don't know what a mainstream consumer is going to respond to. And you can commit to a brand idea, like one campaign, but it's expensive to do that. And it's expensive to go all in. So what we wanted to do was actually, we created a lot of different ideas and we tested a lot of different creative concepts. So we bought the same amount of time on the air as we would have for one commercial, but we created like 35 commercials instead and just slotted them in over the same period of time, which was basically over one year. We did it in two halves. We created first like 15 to 20 commercials. And then we were like, let's do it again. Let's do another 15. The reason we did that is because we really wanted to see what people reacted to, what what got them going, what got them clicking, what they wrote in about. Frankly, it surprised us. Everyone kind of had this internal... We didn't actually do best, but it was kind of as though it was a pool where, you know, I certainly thought that you don't need that guy 
commercials would go pretty well. And it wasn't that. It was the ones that were a little bit more fear, uncertainty, doubt oriented, where people were moved into action by thinking about their futures and their retirement and running out of money and having to flip burgers in retirement. That was an actual storyline to a commercial that we released uh, that people responded pretty actively to. And so it's never the ones that you think it's going to be. So, you know, the idea that you would commit, go all in on one script and one storyline. Now that I've experienced doing the opposite of that, it's like a little bit shocking that anybody does that. And how did you, I mean, it must have been just a ton of work to right, create like 35 different commercial spots. Were they like, did you just test the messaging in each commercial or are there unique actors and setups and scenes? Like how drastic was the test? Yeah. Yes. Good question. We had to do it in as scrappy a way as possible. So one way we did that was we worked really closely with this one production company in LA that I had sourced and they were incredible in that they were really willing to be catering of their work style to this, this like scrappy approach. So what we did was we booked one location across four days. Over those four days, we would do one scene, like basically one setup per day, which meant that like we kind of started our script um, making within certain constraints that would enable us to book a set like that. So for example, on day one, we would record a set that had that was like inside of a house, inside of a kitchen. And in the kitchen, we had two different scripts, two different scenes, two different setups, but with the same actor. So so basically, now you have two different commercials recorded in a day within on one set. On the next day, you could record in the backyard because you would be set up in the backyard and you had a whole different script and you had the same actors. They were wearing different clothes, but like they had a different scenario that they were running through. And now they're doing a thing in the backyard. They're still on the same set. So like you've extended your stay one day. And then the, the next uh, setup that you record like is on the couch in the living room. It's a whole different scenario that they're that they're running through like why they need to do automated investing but now they're sitting on the couch and there's two dudes talking to each other these were our hipster series which actually did do pretty well in the afternoon they're doing the yoga scene which is like in a different room in the house they're both doing yoga and they're talking about wealth friend it was ridiculous and it was fun and it was funny but like you can see how basically that kind of all aligns into this economies of scale where you envision the scenarios within the constraints of the cost of the set and the production. But once you get that out of the way, like those set costs, then you're able to be really creative in your like storytelling within those constraints. Oh, we have a house. Great. We have the backyard. We have a living room. We have a couch. We have a kitchen. We have a this. We have a fireplace. We have a that. Uh, and like, what stories do you tell within those constraints? You, you could be a little bit more scrappy than you might imagine. Yeah, I filmed one commercial in my life for for Lattice. And yeah, we didn't have a huge, huge budget, but it was really interesting Yeah, how the constraints just informed the creativity. Because once it was like, okay, here was my budget, you know, that then yeah. the the agency and the director we were working with was like, okay, well, here's what we can do. It could only be a one yeah. day shoot at one yeah. location. And then the script and the story all sort of forms around that constraint. And it honestly, like at first you're like, oh, that's annoying. I want this and I want that. But then it actually sort of forces the idea and makes it, you know, better along the way. But it's really fun to do. <laughs> it's totally fun. And I think that honestly, if I had to boil down my most saleable marketing skill that I learned across that year of making commercials, making short films, if if you will, like if you'll grant them that artistic license is if you can if you understand the constraints of production you can do incredible storytelling and if you have that opportunity once twice three times you can take that skill with you wherever you go to become a marketer thereafter you can tell story you understand what goes in here and suddenly like the people that you hire the production crews the contractors the freelancers they're like oh my god are you speaking my language because it's so frequently you're not speaking the same language you as a creative person as a marketer who hasn't done any production you have visions right but they're based on things that you've seen on the other side of the screen you've never seen how it gets made how the sausage gets made once you see how the sausage gets made and you start like setting up your campaigns and speaking the language of the sausage makers, oh my gosh, you can achieve so much more economic 
output. You can achieve better relationships with your vendors. You can work more efficiently. Like it's incredible. So, you know, learn the language of the sausage maker. That's my takeaway there. I love it. We got to clip that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Learn the language of the sausage maker. That's the intro that you'll just yeah. use then. <laughs> and then you mentioned this as the be- in the beginning as you were talking about the campaign, but like, how did you actually measure the success? Like, did you have unique URLs and commercials or, or was it more just like a qualitative feedback you heard? Like, yeah, how did you think, think about which, you know, figuring out which variation worked? Yeah, we actually tried to be as like uh, uh, programmatic as possible in that we hired this one agency that specialized commercial awareness or not commercial, but like literally TV spot awareness and measurement. And what we did was we, again, were pretty scrappy uh, with how we purchased our spots. I don't remember the terminology anymore. There's some very like inside baseball terminology. Maybe it's not really a thing anymore as everyone has cut the cord. But when you're buying spots, there's a difference between buying spots like on cable versus the different like local access and like these different channels. So there are certain channels that broadly speaking cover the entire United States, no matter what cable network you're on. And so the cable companies, they, they, whatever contracts they have enable them to just play the feed. Uh, And then there's some that are broken down by geography and region. So like regional buying you can do where, you know, for example, that your spot is going to be on Bravo uh, and on ESPN and on E exclamation point or whatever during the, these very specific time slots in these very specific regions. So I'm playing like Midwestern on Bravo at 4 p.m. Central time. And I just know that that's when my spot's going live. That's when I'm going to watch app download traffic. And that's when I'm going to watch traffic to the site in rolling eight minute increments, right? So it's like the math there was really specific. It was like, okay, for this eight minutes, this was the traffic coming from Chicago or, or the Midwest area. And then the next eight minutes and the next eight minutes and the next eight minutes, the commercial happened in the following eight minutes. Like, oh my God, spike, actual real spike. And you can start to measure that. You're not going to have 100% accuracy, right? Because that's not how people think or do stuff. But certain commercials, just move people more than others. And you would actually see spikes, you know, from mostly mobile, right? Because if they're sitting there watching TV, most likely the traffic is going to be coming from a phone um, if they're very curious and they were moved into action right thereafter. So that's how we would measure it. Yeah, makes sense. It, it reminds me of something I tried to do at Lattice too, whereas we put billboards in different cities and then would watch sort of, you know, um, the uplift in traffic from, yeah, okay, we, we put a billboard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't the eight minute rolling increments have been really fun and exciting. That sounds, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. Like, so yeah. after Wealthfront, you joined Segment. I'd love to know, like, why, why'd you join Segment and kind of what was it like when you joined? Yeah. So the reason I joined Segment is because I was looking to get back into B2B marketing. And I think B2B marketing and B2C marketing are pretty, pretty different animals and and different specialties that you end up really flexing. And the reason I wanted to get back into B2B is because I had been having a really interesting adventure with B2C selling consumers like sophisticated investment services, basically. So when the market was up and to the right, which it was for several of those first years that you just felt like a genius. You could just pat yourself on the back. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm, we're, I'm the world's best marketer. This is the world's best company. Everything's going well. Everything's up and to the right. And then the second the market gets just a little bit choppy, just like slightly volatile. You could see that reflected in people's actions because they're moved to this degree when they're thinking about their money and their personal assets and like whether or not they can afford it. It's like a very true, gripping sense and as a marketer i got to this place where i was like oh man there's truly nothing that there's very little that i can do to to convince people to do the right thing and it was kind of like a little bit demotivating it, it was difficult it was incredibly challenging to be like i know that the right thing to do when the market is volatile is nothing don't do anything stop opening your app don't even look at it you know it's not doing you any favors You're not going to change the trajectory of the market by getting stressed out, upset, and worried about it. And certainly what you don't want to do is sell. Sell, sell, sell. 
right? Which is your first instinct and the thing that most people do. That's literally the opposite of what you should be doing. In fact, the truly sophisticated investors buy more because they're buying at a discount, generally speaking, right? In the world of passive long-term investing. And it's very, very difficult to convince mainstream consumer to do the right thing because it goes so against what they want to do, which is like cut their losses and peace out. So I wanted to get back into B2B marketing because, you know, my, my point of view is that a B2B consumer is just a little bit more rational, a little bit more logical, a little bit less motivated by their gut and a little bit more motivated by, you know, education and rationale. And probably it's not their money. So they're just not quite as worried about it. So in the segment, there were 60 people and we were selling a very clear cut, like a very clear cut B2B product that had no overlap into your personal life, which would, which really quite appealed to me. Yeah. No, the hard part with B2C, yeah, it's just like so much about the cultural zeitgeist and it gets trendy and then it doesn't and it's hard to yeah. catch those those ways. And yeah, I always, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always like, oh, you kind of started the consumer side and it's because that's like fun to make things like that. Yeah. But then the best part about B2B is like you're solving a real business problem and your customers will talk to you and tell you exactly yeah. how you can solve their problems and how you can get paid to solve their problems. And so, yeah, yeah I've, I've, when I figured that out, when I joined Lattice, I was like, okay, this is this is a better spot for me uh, to play in as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it seemed like when you first were at Segment, you focused on demand gen, and then you kind of switched back to kind of your core competency around brand and comms. Can you talk about kind of what that experience was like in the early days and, and maybe the evolution of, of the marketing team at Segment? Sure. Yeah. So when I started, there was another another marketer and myself, and then we grew a teams around us. So basically... In the earliest days, we were just hired to just like, just help us do marketing. Just come here and help. And so my literally my first project within three weeks of arrival, well, before I even arrived, I got an email from the first marketer being like, we're launching a product uh, within a month of your arrival. Uh, or or woohoo rather. And she's like, I know that you love video because I would, had just come fresh off the wealth front like year of commercials. Uh, should we do a video for this? And so despite the fact that I got hired in to be a product marketer, I'm arriving and and like on day one, hiring the same production company, doing the same setup and immediately flying to LA to shoot a commercial and a series of actually a series of two to one, say what is segment and two launch sources, which was the first product. So like, despite what you're hired in to do or what your title says at those earliest stages of a startup, you end up doing all the things that needs to be done. And then it quickly becomes evident, like what you're good at, what you really spike in, what the other person spikes in, how you're complementary with each other and how you're going to grow the teams. Right. And so, yeah, over time, like uh, we actually ended up having a discussion, Diana and myself being like, I love, and it fills my cup to do brand marketing. And this is what it means. And the, the creative component, she's like, it fills my cup to do product marketing. And we literally ended up switching. And so that's how we, we grew. And then we soon thereafter, we had a VP growth join, um, Guillaume Caban, who like, uh, he's definitely known as the mad scientist. And, and I, I can say with like 100% certainty, he is still a mad scientist. I recently hung out with him and he was just like, his crazy spike and the thing that filled his cup and the way that he got energy was to think up these like out the wall outlandish growth experiments we'd make them live quickly like half of them would work half of them wouldn't and we would just run all together and i would create the campaigns and diana would actually write in the like well this is how the product works and within the realm of this campaign and who we're selling it to and who actually would care about this feature and this component and guillaume would be like deploy crazy test that strings together like 17 of our martech tools within our stack does it work do we get more leads in the pipeline? Are the salespeople fed? That's how we three work together over time. I love it. There's such a good lesson in there around, I don't know, yeah, one, focusing on exactly what you want to focus on and also just being flexible in the early days of a startup. So many things are changing. So many things are are moving and you just got to yeah. kind of shift to where you personally both can add the most value and where you're, yeah. you're having the most fun. And I'd love to go deeper on brand building because I think it's like a really hard activity for people to grok and understand. It's such a nebulous activity. And yeah. so like, 
How did you think about building the brand at Segment? And like, what does that work actually look like? Are you, you know, creating a bunch of internal positioning documents and then going to run and make commercials? Like, what does that can you kind of take us behind the scenes of that? Yeah, I think in the earliest days, it really helped to uh, like kind of get an established, almost like an establishing shot. So an establishing shot in like movie lingo is that first uh, 30 seconds of a film that you're watching where you can actually, you're supposed to be able to tell where you are based on what you see, right? So the establishing shot of Manhattan is like classics, like looking down, you see Central Park, you see the tall buildings. Uh, establishing shot of San Francisco is usually, but not always, the Golden Gate Bridge, despite like whatever part of the Bay Area the, the film is actually shot in. First thing you see is the Golden Gate Bridge. You're like, oh, I'm in the Bay Area. So if you could have an establishing shot for your brand at the very beginning, that really helps. There's some understanding of what, if I showed you this, you'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. This feels right. This feels right. And what I mean by that is I think it took those first set of videos. First of all, you pick a script and you do it with your founders. Like you pitch them a series of ideas. They only like a few. And then you narrow down to what feels right when we talk about segment, what feels right when we think about you're going to see this on a screen. It's going to be the first representation of a, of a story that, that we're telling that is like in a, an analog to, to real life that makes sense to you. And the styling of it um, is specific. And the words that we use, that's setting a tone. And we have to be completely in alignment that we love this, that we're proud of this. And if you get that right, you can actually just see, you can just basically see the line that comes out and all of the branching paths that the, that the marketing campaigns of the future take, but you can trace them all back to that like establishing shot. For example, at Segment, our first video was, what is Segment? And if you search that, it's still live. My girl with the red hair, she's an, she's an engineer. Her name is Cassie. We named her. She's the actor in the video. And she is sitting inside of a really rad helmet making company. And I use the word rad specifically because she says, I work at a rad helmet making, or I make rad helmets. We make rad helmets. It's like customer can design their own helmets. And like the whole thing was fun and interesting and quirky. Uh, we made a whole bunch of the production company made these like ridiculously cool helmets that were just like, you know, a motorcycle hipsters, you know, dream which are the spikes and the hair and the polka dots and whatever. And we built all of that so that we could put them all in the establishing shot for the video. She says the word rad a couple of times. We explain what segment does. She's still a software engineer. She's still in her element. She's still taking time to explain somewhat realistically, but the concept of what segment is, but we've set the establishing shot. The reason the video is still live six years later, seven years later, is because it turned out to be evergreen. You don't always go into like brand building with the idea that your your work's going to be evergreen. But if it works, it works. You know, it's like it's like this magical moment where all the stars have aligned. And so I think if you can get an establishing shot that you are very proud of, like within the company, all of the most important stakeholders, the founders, the people who are building it from the ground up, they feel proud of that work. You're just going to see it. It's just going to keep you're going to keep building off of that as opposed to they're not proud of it. So you actually see it changing quite often, which means there's no consistency, which means there's very little recall. Right. And that's when you're not doing a great job building that brand. And so you, you, you have this establishing shot that sort of sets the tone for the brand, but then, you know, the product and everything evolves, right? The market's evolving, your competition's evolving, you're adding a bunch of new products into the suite. Like, how did you think about sort of evolving segments brand over time? And, you know, maybe what did it look like, you know, five, six years later? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, to some extent, it really becomes higher and higher production value. And to some extent, you also just band the places where you are building a brand. So where, you know, the style of our video production didn't really change. What we did do is add in a whole bunch of different channels over over five and a half years that I was there, where we were establishing our brand. Right. So in the beginning it was just with some videos. And then it was we put on a user conference. And the first year and it had its own brand. It was called Synapse. In the first year, there was 400 people. The second year, there was 800 people. The third year, there was like closer to 2,000 people. 
and you are building the Synapse brand uh, in parallel with Segment, then you do billboards, you do out of home. Even your billboards change in style. And then the, may, maybe the culmination is like a three-dimensional, like physical board with craps on it that's in the Bay Area. Anybody listening is in the Bay Area off the 80 East going towards Bay Bridge. It's still up. Um, great billboard. So I, I know that one well. Yeah. Yes, thank you. But it makes me really proud every time I drive past it. Let's talk about the user conference, then we'll, we'll go go back to billboards in a second. Like, sure. um, so yeah, Synapse. You talked a little about like the evolution in terms of numbers, but like, yeah, why did you even create a user conference in the first place? I mean, I know when I try to do this at Laz, it's so expensive, and yeah. a lot of work, right? And so, yeah, work. like, why did you do it? And and can you talk about you know bringing it to life? It is a lot of work, and you really like as a as a startup have to think really hard about when you're ready for it because basically i do think that once you debut a user conference you can't go back like you're not going to stop doing it and you shouldn't stop doing it because that sends a whole different message it didn't work we failed (laughs) at this we don't have enough users for user conference we can't justify this like you don't want to do that you don't want to be that startup so like if you're committing to a program basically for live um you have to make sure you're ready so why do you do it because all of the best tech companies have one because you have a community of users out in the world somewhere in the wild and bring them together where they're all in the same place at the same time learning about your product because they're actually kind of excited to be there and learn about what you're debuting there is no better gratification for a software company than actually seeing it right like you spend every single day building stuff for people you're delighted when they use it you're delighted when they buy it, but there's nothing that feels better than you get them all in the same auditorium and they're rip roaring ready to hear you say like what you're about to announce as a product and people clap, applaud and whoop and cheer and you didn't pay them to do it. Like that's, that's, it, it's a rush like you've never experienced before. On the business side, you're looking at retention. You are looking at contract expansion because Typically, you know, you're trying to align your conference around you're launching something big and new. You want to launch, you want to launch something big and new every year if you can. And every time you do, you're, you do it on the hopes that it will make your product more sticky or, you know, you're going to charge more for it. So it will make your company more money. And like you have this literally a focal point to align the entire company around. Like we are launching this in March. Or nothing. There's no other choice because we put it up, we sold the tickets, and we're going to be there in March, and we're going to launch this thing. Which is where, you know, in some cases, you see a, a vaporware launch. It's because, like, you know, the the cart got put before the horse. You didn't actually build the product. It's not ready, but you have the auditorium full of people, and they're waiting. And like, well, it's got to be launched somehow. You know, unfortunately, that is also like a type of standard that you know you can fall back on if you really need to. Yeah, when we did this at Lattice, it was like, it was amazing to watch the internal, what's the like the crazy amount of internal focus and push towards the conference, but then also just how excited everyone was when the conference came. Like yeah. the look on Jack, the CEO's face when he got on stage and could feel the community yeah. and stuff that he had helped build and just everyone was smiling and exciting and like, you know, I don't know how much like revenue or pipeline or whatever it drove, but it definitely yeah. like yeah. retained employees, got customers so excited and like, you know, we sit behind our computers all day. Yeah. Um, it's so different to be in a room full of your customers and everyone totally. is super excited. It's like an amazing yeah. feeling. A hundred percent agree. But then you have to keep doing it every year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have like a recommendation for companies thinking about this? I mean, is the best way to think about it like budget perspective? Like I think at Lattice, I mean, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers. We did a smaller one for like couple hundred K two to 400 maybe. And then it was like, Oh, let's do a million dollar one. And Mm -hmm. COVID COVID uh, hurt, hurt that uh, idea. But yeah, I don't know what, how do you think about when should companies do this? As far as when I actually think that it's okay to start small. Like you don't have to wait until you have thousands of users or thousands of customers. It's really about when you want to, start punching above it, like punching above your weight class, but you're ready to commit. You are dedicated to the idea of forming and, and forming and feeding a community around your product. And if you can envision one future day where like, you know, 
dream, uh, dream force, right? Like dream force is like one of your guiding stars. You can envision doing a conference for 20 years and the, and the audience just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Like it's time, right? That's when it's time is you can actually envision it. You can actually tie a thread, even if it's a dream thread, that's when you can start, especially when you're on like a product roadmap and launch cadence where you can actually start sorting sorting away uh, from just like constant small launches into let's have a big vision. Let's share a big vision. Let's unite customers around a big vision. That's when it's a good time. And you can start small and by small, I mean like hundred people at a conference, still great, still a great time because you record the whole thing. Uh, you have the video for video on demand afterwards and you know, you could stream it. People can stream it as often as they want a hundred people inside of the correctly sized space are still having a really great time together when it's a well-produced, like high production value event. And I always used to think about it. Like, I know this is probably not the the gold standard of an event planner, but I used to think about it on a cost per, I, I would think about all my stuff as a cost per unit. That for me was the simplest like way of keeping track and not letting things go too far awry. And for me, like a, a golden number was about a thousand dollars a head thousand dollars a head per segment for a user conference and not above that and that's that's where i kept like the the line is if you can go all in with your vendors and your services and all the fees and you just like everything stacks up you spend a thousand dollars like making sure that one customer in the audience has had a good time that day you don't need to go too far like it's really easy to spiral out of control and end up spending a lot more than that but you don't need to. That that's about the amount where you can fed them. You can keep them nicely fed. Uh, they had a good time, and they were accounted for for like you know eight hours that day, and it felt like pretty high production value. But on the flip side, like that, it's kind of scrappy when you actually start to break it down. And in fact, with service costs being really, really, really high now in a city like San Francisco, where there's a lot of unions and lab, like labor unions in, in inside of large event spaces, now maybe it's like twelve hundred, thirteen hundred. But you do not need to be spending $3,000 per head. Uh, and then another mistake that you don't need to make is, um, you know, you think about your conference as the time that you're going to get the whole company together and attending your conference, right? So this is when you see, uh, I see that you've, you've been there. You, you are seeing like 50 customers in the crowd and 100 people from your staff. And now what did you just do? You spent a thousand dollars per head because it's, it's just like $1,000 per human person who takes up space. You're blowing it on the people that already work for you as opposed to the customers. So I would, we would only let people um, come physically to the conference if they had a slot on the stage, if they had some, some form of uh, work to do in terms of boothing or selling on the floor or, or volunteering, you know, like uh, directing people to the bathrooms and whatever all that kind of stuff. And otherwise you're sitting at the office live streaming it from there. Yeah, that was very, yeah, you made me think of some very funny internal conversations where it's like, you guys can come, you can't. And it gets yeah. dicey, but to your point, it gets so expensive. And yeah, I think we actually had a very similar budget, a thousand bucks ahead, but that, you know, that's where it's like, oh, a million dollar conference sounds crazy. But if you want a thousand people at a yeah, conference exactly. for a thousand bucks a person, there's your number right there. And it's yep. really hard to to do that. In 2019, you ran a national campaign around a great slogan, you know, what what good is bad data? Can you kind of talk about that campaign and, and why did you go with that positioning and kind of what were all the different elements of it? Yeah, sure. So what good is bad data? I think the answer, it should be simple. Like once you think about it, it's like, what good is bad data? It's no good. It's worth literally zero. If your data is wrong, you got nothing. And that was Segment's whole product. Like if you tie that up in a nutshell, how easy is it to get your data wrong? Do you have to, if you don't have a central repository for it and you're sending, you know, different conventionally structured data to all these different providers that you have, and you probably have a lot of providers and like the chances of something going wrong are like very high, unless you have really great data at the source and the source is what sends the same set of data to all the fanned out like integration vendors that, that you have. We needed a, a pithy way to tie that up. So that's what good is bad data. But what good is bad data is just like kind of the overlapping idea. That's the the closest analogy to like a one-liner that you could say, yeah, so that's what segment does. You could be like, what good is bad data? No good? Yeah, that's what segment does. Make sure your data is good so it's not worthless. But then you need other, you need offshoots 
of that campaign slogan, basically, to make it work, to make it obvious, to make it click for people. And so the first offshoot that, that we came up with that made it click for people, we did it sitting in a room because our billboard, you know, the, our placement had to go live within a month and we had nothing and we didn't have a creative agency and we had like the brain trust sitting in a room together, the most creative people and the founders and uh, some of the leaders in charge of, you know, selling, just being like, oh, what are we going to put? What are we going to put? What are we going to put? And the the head of comms who worked on my team, so brilliant. He said, Haha, what good is bad data? Like, what if the billboard just said, like, good morning, LA? And the first spot, we're in San Francisco, right? Like, the first spot we're talking about that we bought is a board in the city. And everyone's like, we just all burst into laughter. And it seems so ridiculous. It seems so outlandish to put a board up that says, good morning, LA, in SF. And that's when we knew it was kind of like, that is so ridiculous and we have to do it. But it wouldn't have worked unless our establishing shot, right, that we had from the beginning was like, it's okay to be quirky. It's like, like we're going to lean into the quirk. We're not going to be weird about it, but it's it's always going to be slightly quirky. And so that was okay with everybody in the room because it had been a part of our culture for for years. And we launched with it and it kind of went viral. And because we put it also, we put uh, good morning, LA, all over San Francisco. And then in San Francisco, uh, in, in LA, we had good morning SF in a whole bunch of places in LA. You know, first of all, the people that immediately got it, you knew who they were. They were data people. They were tech people. And the kind of feedback that we got on Twitter and, you know, anecdotally and just people sharing it and writing us emails about it was like, ha ha ha, you made me laugh on my bus ride this morning. And then we got this other class of feedback, which was actually like a gift. It was a gift in disguise, which was people ragging on us because they thought we made a mistake. Like they thought we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars making a mistake as rudimentary as putting the wrong billboard in the wrong city. And they're like, uh, I think you guys made a mistake here. Or did you mean to put this there? And there was just so many people who shared about that, like out into social media, just anxious to be like, uh, oh, I found a mistake out in the wild. That that was like an unexpected source of virality. So that campaign worked really, really well in two different ways. I still remember that campaign. I remember driving around SF and seeing it and it, that billboard. Yeah, like you, it makes you go, aha. And it, like it just yeah. stands out. It is so memorable and funny. I mean, and that's the secret to good billboard advertising. Like you can't just yeah. have like your vanilla messaging out there. You know, it's like segment is a data platform. It's like, no, yeah. like you need something that gets people to like, like laugh a little or just folk, yeah. you know, uh, while they're driving their cars, distract them and stuff. Yeah. And so you do yeah, your best, no, it was right? awesome. You do the best you can. Like there's no formula. It's just like, every so often you get so lucky you work with creative people and everyone laughs and you're like well we're gonna we'll, that's we're running it like we'll do it live like we're gonna try it you know yeah and, yeah stroke of luck my best campaign was it was in the first crypto craze and we were selling like hr tech company and we it was uh we put up a billboard like invest in your people not crypto um, I like it. And got a ton of <laughs> angry crypto people yelling at us and stuff. But then, you know, it was like, you know, a good message that we wanted to send and it stood out okay. and it was, it was, it was funny. Yeah. Coinbase, our customer wasn't too happy, but it was good. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I bet you had both types of people. You had the angry, the angry crypto people being like, what the hell? And then you had people on the flip side of the, on the flip side of the crypto bros, like very anti crypto bro being like, thank you. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Like you actually yeah. have these opposites. Maybe there's something there, which is you look for a way that you can speak to two groups of people and you wouldn't mind speaking to two groups of people. Yeah. Well, that's the hard part with billboards in general is like you're speaking to everyone, you know, yeah, like exactly. everyone is going to see this. And so you need like a way to cut through the noise to your audience while not like, but also somehow talking to other people too. And it's such a tricky yeah. little, little balance uh, there, but. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's fun. Billboards are really fun. <laughs> I spent so many times like walking by people at desks and being like, what do you think of this ad? What do you think of that ad? And like, you know, um, yeah. it's fun to, to come up with that. And scary too, because you're like putting his big message out into the world and you can't really change it Literally. like you can in digital. Yeah, totally. I mean, you have yeah. like a month, right? Within a month, you can scrap it. But 
you don't want to. It's because then then you're like you are giving into no recall. So Segment was eventually acquired by Twilio and you were there for kind of that acquisition. I'd love to just kind of hear like what that was like from your perspective and how did that, you know, impact your job as, you know, running brand and comms? Did you have to update all the positioning? Was it more independent? Yeah. How do you think about it? Yes, actually, there was a moment in time where it, it was like immediate, you are immediately thrown into the fire of like, you have to integrate the messaging as fast as possible because you're being absorbed into a publicly traded company. And so there's a lot of things about the way that publicly traded companies are like regulated and the way their communications are received and the way their communications are put out into the world. But you need to be, you can't just be, basically you're not messing around anymore because because they're regulated and they're your, and they're your mom now. And so you have to like, you know, do, do stuff that mom says. And within a week, you know, you're on, you're on calls about, Here's some brand directions for the logo. Is it going to be segment by Twilio? Twilio segment? Is it going to be segment a Twilio company? Like, you know, there's optionality there. And so you try to like look at other examples of the way other software brands that were acquired into the Twilio family, like what what did they do? Should we be consistent? Should they not? And, and of course you're like, you're going with the flow of what your new corporate overlords want. And that's fine, right? Like that they're, Again, they're your parents now, and that's and, and so you go with it. That's how segment became Twilio segment, and that's how the logo. I think in the last year it became capitalized again. It's just like these brand decisions that are different. A different mom now. <laughs> I love the parents analogy because yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to end today's conversation by just maybe giving some advice to, you know, startups or founders who, you know, want to start investing into some of the things that we've talked about today, you know, brand and comms. Like, yeah, what advice do you give them? Like, when do, when can they start investing in these activities? When do you maybe hire a dedicated team? Like, as you're talking to other founders and or marketing leaders in this world, um, yeah, what's your advice for them? Oh, that's an interesting one to try to just boil down into some advice tidbits. But I would say, I would say the following. I think creativity is the thing that you are looking for when you are trying to build and and nurture your own brand. And what you and the best thing to do is look around inside of your company and understand and find where the creativity is. Because believe it or not, like the type of creativity that I'm talking about, it's not everybody's skill set. That's literally the reason agencies exist, like creative agencies, you know, Mad Men, the Don Drapers of the world. It's a skill set that is unique to certain people and they and they gravitate towards that. The creatives of the world are like, I must work in this way. You know, you could turn around and say they don't have plenty of other skills that you probably do as a founder or a technical person or whatever. The way that I am creative and, and the way that I like in the the work that I do, I have matching dips on the opposite side where man being analytical about something or like filling out a spreadsheet. That's the kind of stuff that will scramble my brain and like it'll start oozing out from my ear. So these opposites recognize that it's a, a skill set and then find the people in your company that have this. They are not always distinctly working on marketing and that's okay. Pull them into a room for a few sessions on, you know, building the creative component parts of your brand and be like, how do you talk about it when you talk about it to your friends and your family and your partners and your significant others and your creative people in your life and your, you know, your side hustle gang? Uh, how do you talk about it? What, what's the latest kind of campaigns that you have seen out in the world that you thought were cool? Get the download from the people that are closest to your company that are actually creative. If there's literally zero people, you can start looking like outside of that. You can bring in the creatives, the agencies, they exist for you. Um, but don't discount that you actually might have very creative people internally that maybe aren't specifically like classified as marketers, but they will, they are the people that will come up with like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this thing at this uh, competitor event that like we put up a billboard that says this? And you're like, oh my God, that's the coolest idea that I've heard in a long time. I know you're not a marketer, but I trust that you're creative and you love this brand you or you love this company, you love this product. Let's do the thing. 
Like that's where I would start. Look internally. If you don't got it, go outside. A-okay. Find those people that you bring into your fold and then start there. Love it. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation, Maya. If people want to reach out to you and learn more, I know you're maybe doing some some consulting these days to yeah. help other startups and founders. Where, where can people find you? Yes. I think the easiest way is find me on LinkedIn. I am Maya Bivak. And find me on LinkedIn, shoot me a note, connect with me, and we will... I'm, I'm always happy to connect. Plus, I'm in San Francisco. So like, any chance to meet IRL after these three years of, uh, of being a shut-in, I take those chances. So yeah, hit me up. LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.